All right, uh, we're, we're going to be in uh, Matthew 19, so open up your Bibles to Matthew 19. If you need a Bible, these folks will be walking down the aisle to give you one. You're going to need it. And before we stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord, I wanted to um, walk you through a refresher. And uh, the reason why is this message has kind of been burning in me uh, through the course of the week. Um, really, even up until this morning, just trying to piece it together as to what God wanted to do. Um, a portion of the week, as you know, on Tuesday, uh, I had a council meeting. We were dealing with Measure E. It was supposed to be an intense meeting. It ended up being any, you know, it, it, we had over 30 public speakers, and uh, it was an interesting evening. Afterwards, I was invited, low man on the totem pole, the rookie, to go and uh, spend time with the other council members um, afterwards. And I had a chance to sit with somebody whose name uh, will be, you know, anonymous. Suffice it to say, it was significant. And I had this chance to talk to him about the Lord and just watching how God uses these neat opportunities to be a blessing. And my heart was deeply touched and I was full. And, and then in the course of the week, I have a, a, a brother in the Lord who I've been struggling with and uh, really worried about their family, him and his family. And reaching out to him, I spent about an hour and a half, two hours in the parking lot of Trader Joe's. Uh, ministering, trying to reach out to them, really worried that they're kind of going off the rails. Um, all this stuff is spinning in my head and uh, what we did on Wednesday night um, and just everything. And then culminating with the significance of what today is, which you'll find out in a moment. And then realizing Frank has come in and all this is just hitting me. And um, I was up last night and then early this morning and just asking the Lord to just kind of put it together. And he showed me this sequence, and so I'm going to pick up for you in the sequence of the things we've already studied so that you can be prepared in context for what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. And uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to refresh your memory, starting back in our study together in Matthew 16, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus seeking a sign. And here you have these political leaders, and Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any sign, but that of Jonah talks about Christ being preeminent. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this idea of power and government. And then at that point, Peter confesses Christ as, as Lord up in Caesarea Philippi. And, uh, and at that moment, he talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Peter says, that can't happen. He says, get behind me, Satan. And then all of a sudden, uh, Jesus uses that as a lesson to teach the disciples. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. So he's pouring into these guys. He's using everything imaginable. And then he takes Peter, James, and John chapter 17 up on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we assume is Mount Hermon. Uh, we're going to see that when we go to Israel in November. And as they come back, having seen Moses and Elijah up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're blown away, they come down. The other nine disciples are trying to heal this boy. They can't do it. Jesus does it. Uh, then Jesus again talks about his death and his resurrection. And then at that point, Peter then goes to him and says, look, we got to pay the taxes. And he talks about the hook and the fish and go take the money out and go pay the taxes so as not to offend. We see this civic engagement and the things that Jesus is doing. And then he gets into chapter 18, and there's an argument over the disciples, which is just so common to all of us. Who is the greatest? This idea of, you know, who's preeminent? We're always, you know, we're the center of the universe. And, and Jesus has to really deal with this. And he, he goes and he talks to them uh, about the greatest in the kingdom. And he uses the illustration with the children. And he calls them to himself. And he says, you have to become his little children. Otherwise, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And, um, 
And, and this, is, this is profound. And then Jesus warns of the offense. He says, you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck, cast in the deepest ocean. And he's focusing on the future generation. He just says, you have a responsibility to, 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 to lay the groundwork for them to flourish. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full. And, and that means that children are arrows that we shoot into a future we're never going to see. And we want to prepare that future for them that they would flourish and come to, to, to experience the full nature for which God has created them. And we want a society that would allow them to flourish and experience that. He talks about the parable of the lost sheep. And then he goes into this thing that always causes us to struggle as human beings. And it's the idea of someone offending us. And he tells us how to deal with an offended brother in Matthew 18. We go to them to win them. And that's what I was doing all week with my friend, trying to win them and trying to, you know, just, just speak into their heart and, and reach their heart and to come to this place of understanding and laboring in that. It would have been much easier to have just written them off and move on with your life, but God doesn't let us do that. Interpersonal relationships are of greatest importance to the Lord. And he talks about the parable of the unforgiving servant and, and the Lord convicted me with that and, and to the point where we were at loggerheads and I, I responded after my wife had told me, you know, they're going through a really tough time. Be mindful of that. And so I just laid on my sword and I just laid out an apology and it opened up a dialogue again. And I'm watching all this come to fruition. Everything we've been learning, God's been blessing me with and I pray it's been happening for you. And then we get to Matthew 19 and obviously one of the major issues in our culture is marriage and divorce. We, we saw this picture of William Bradford, the governor of the the colony of Plymouth and, and the Mayflower compact. And, and here's this amazing man to, you know, the first civil compact on, on American soil or on North, North American soil. And then we see direct descendants, this elderly couple, and they'd prayed that their oldest son would be a, a missionary. And, and they'd been married over 50 years, faithful to church. And the oldest son is engaged to be married and he actually serves in the armed forces. And while he's engaged, his fiance, uh, cheats on him with another guy. And when he realizes this, he ends the marriage and just calls it quits and then decides to just go off the rails and he starts um, Playboy magazine, Hugh Hefner, direct descendant of William Bradford. And we saw that last week. And then Jesus teaches on celibacy. And then, and then all of this is, is kind of coming to this head. And, and then the Lord brings me to Matthew 19. And it begins with a story, interestingly enough, that we'll cover momentarily. And it's almost one of those things as a teacher that you bypass to get to the the thing that has the most significance. It's, it's, it's three verses, 13 and 15, that talk about these little children. And then it gets into this story about the rich young ruler. And the reason why we call him rich young ruler is because in Luke 18, 18, it calls him a ruler, archon, which means he's a sovereign. He is, he's a leader. He is uh, a chief magistrate. He is a, a civil uh, governor. He is a man of great importance. And he operates in the government according to, to Luke 18, 18. And, and we see how he interacts with them and then uses that to interact with, with the disciples. And this is something that culminating with today, which is the 500th anniversary of something very significant. I'll show you momentarily. Uh, I have been moved by it. You're going to need your thinking caps on today. You got to pay attention. If you were up late last night and you weren't preparing for service, you're going to struggle. Ask God for grace. Ask for strength. It'll, it'll minister to you, but pay attention. So let's begin by getting some exercise. Get your brain clear. Stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, if you would. We're going to pick up at verse 13. Then the little children were, bought, were brought to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now let's do this together. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the. And he laid his hands on them and he departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. By the way, the Ten Commandments, he, he uses not the vertical ones of our relationship with God. He uses the horizontal ones with our relationship with each other. You're a civil leader. You, you need to understand how to work with people. And so he asks him those. And it's fascinating his response. The young man says in verse 20, all these I have kept from my youth. <laughs> He's a liar. <laughs> What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? (laughs) Again, what's in it for me? So Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let me pray and then I'll explain. Holy Spirit, please lead us into all truth. I pray your blessing on this study. God, keep us attentive, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak powerfully and deeply into our lives. And Lord, we're so grateful for your living word that ministers to us. So bless all who are present, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I know that I just uh, read extensively out of Matthew 19. And um, this account of what I read in Matthew 19 occurs in two other gospel accounts, both in Luke 18 and Mark chapter 10. In Luke 18, 18, that's where we learn that he's a ruler, he's a magistrate, he's a sovereign. And we understand this title that's given to him, that he's a very important person. Uh, But Mark adds some things that uh, Luke and Matthew don't add. And I like that, and I wanted to focus on that this morning Uh, In chapter 10 of Mark, verse 13, it says, Then they brought the little children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Now, I had uh, a pastor who was a doctor of Old Testament theology at Azusa Pacific University, and he always pointed out that anytime you're studying the Gospels, each passage relates to the next. And most pastors will teach this and kind of bypass the blessing of the children and then get into the teaching of the rich young ruler. But this professor taught me to say, why is this in existence and how does it affect the next portion? And that's why we started in Matthew 16 and we're seeing it all tie in as Jesus is using each of these to speak to our lives. 
So here he takes these children and they're all being brought to him by all these people, parents, grandparents, and, and the idea is little children. So uh, they're, they're not above the age of 13 where they would be considered adults having done their bar mitzvah or bab mitzvah. They're under that 12 and below, and they want him to lay hands on him and bless him. And they're concerned about children and their, and their future. Let me repeat that. They're concerned about the children and their future. They're living in a world where Rome dominates. They're living in a world where poverty is escalating. They're living in a world where a third of the world are slaves and they have a dream for their children and they see a man with power and they're concerned about the next generation and their children. There isn't a parent on the face of the earth that wouldn't want to do the same thing. We all want something special for our kids and their future. Can I get an amen? amen? And so with that being said, as these people are bringing them, the disciples, the disciples start to rebuke them and say, this is a busy man. He doesn't need to be bothered with kids. That's done in the children's ministry. (laughs) But when Jesus saw it, he was not just displeased. It says in Mark, he was greatly displeased. It it almost invoked anger. He was greatly displeased. And he said to them, let the little children come on, come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is the next generation. This is what you're pouring into. These are arrows you're shooting into a future you're not going to see. And as I was talking with this person on Tuesday night after the council meeting, they were preparing uh, uh, for uh, an event change in their life. And they're asking about children and things of that sort. And I had shared that passage that children are an arrow that you shoot into a future you won't see. And, 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 you know, all these ideas, and they started to grasp this idea of everything you do in the governmental realm is for the next generation. Uh, a, a nation grows great whose citizens plant trees of whose shade they will not see. We're, we're, we're putting things in place that will affect the next generation. And you do that. And that's the mindset that you have. And, and I'm, I'm having this conversation with this, this, this person of, of influence and they're getting it and they understand it and they're touched by it. And I can't just walk by this, this reading and somehow think it doesn't tie in with what God wants to say, because he says, This is the kingdom of God. Verse 15, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. And he's just touching on them and loving on them. And this is a magnificent, and and parents are talking about it. And and there's just something special about it. So much so that it says in verse 17, as Jesus is going out on the road, as he's left doing this, it says, one came running. He, He saw this and he comes running. Uh, whatever this man is about, whatever he is saying, I am, I, I've got to connect with this guy because he gets it. He gets it. This is the future. What we do is about the future. And here he is a ruler. He's a sovereign. He's a magistrate. He comes running after Jesus. He kneels before him, recognizing his authority. And he asked him saying, good teacher, using the word rabbi and adding the word good. What shall I do that I might inherit eternal life or a life of virtue? And, and Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Let's deal with this right away. Good and evil, right and wrong, left and right. I mean, you're a man who deals with this day in and day out. You legislate, you deal with laws. Why do you call me good? Where do you get your standard? What is your standard for such a statement as this? Some people call evil good and good evil. You call me good. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Oftentimes people come up to me and say, how are you doing, Pastor Ross? I'm doing good. I don't do that anymore. I say, I'm doing well. Only God. I, I know me. I, the only good I'm doing is if Jesus is in charge. Rob's not doing good. Jesus is. Can I get an amen? amen. 
And he says to him, and he goes right to the heart of the issue, a man who legislates, a man who magistrates, a man who is a sovereign. He goes right to the heart of it. He says, you know, the commandments, you know, the laws, you know, the laws do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now we know that that's not true, but he really feels as though he's for the most part, I've done that since my youth. And Jesus looked at him. And what I love about Mark is he adds something that the other gospel accounts don't add. And Matthew left it out and Luke left it out. It says, verse 21, then Jesus looking at him, loved him, loved him. He, he, he hadn't given his heart to the Lord. He, he didn't profess his sins. Actually, he was a man of pride in the sense that he thought he was without sin. I'd kept the commandments since my youth and Jesus loved him. I, I got a, a, just a caustic letter from somebody who just, just read me the riot act that I would, I would even be involved in my sister's life as a lesbian. I'm thinking about Frank and Keith, you know, letting him play in a Christian band and he's not a believer. And yet we rise and fall before one master. That's the Lord. And God spoke to Frank and, 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 and spoke to the band members. And Keith is grateful for that. My sister's grateful for that. But it's amazing how we use the law to justify our in, in, unwillingness to engage. Oftentimes we water down the law so as not to have to confront evil. I mean, it's two-sided, isn't it? I mean, 76%, according to George Barner, 76% of the evangelical Christian church in America believes that Christ is not the only way to heaven. So we're, we're obviously missing something from the pulpit in our teaching. It's frightening, isn't it? And yet there's a balance, isn't there? Be all things to all men that you might win some. Oh, you're watering down the gospel. And, and, and yet you look at it, you say, well, where's the answer? Is it this idea of, of Christian anarchy where, where we want to destroy the culture and rebuild it to have his kingdom come? And, and, and we, we see this in Christian reconstructionists. We see it in a number of other areas. We, we see this idea of dominionism, all different kinds of things out there. And yet the balance of it and Jesus pointing it out, he loved him. You'll know they're Christians by what? Their love. One would respond, well, I love because I command the law to be adhered to. You're clinging symbol or sounding brass. Let's be candid. And he said to him, one thing you lack. He loved him. He looked at him. He can just see his heart blessing. And he says, but this, there's, there's one thing you lack. And Jesus, knowing the heart of every issue is an issue of the heart. He looks at him. He says, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and take up your cross and follow me. Now he's not saying that anyone who wants to follow Christ must be without possession and can't be wealthy. And we know him to be a rich young ruler because the other gospels point this out. He's a man of great wealth. He's not saying to anyone who's rich, you can't be a follower of Christ uh, and be rich. It doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, everyone in this room would be considered wealthy in the world standards. And so if that were the case, nobody in this church uh, is sufficient. What he's saying is it's the one thing that stands in the way of you and me. This is more important. It's, it's what Augustine called the libido uh, domini, dominati, dominidi, the libido dominidi. It's this lust for power. 
You, you want to concentrate wealth into your, and, and you want to concentrate authority. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Later on, we're going to see uh, one of the mothers coming up of the sons of Zebedee saying, can one of my sons sit on your left and the other on your right? These are the disciples. They have experienced the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet there is still this lust for power. And he turns to them and he said, the one thing you're struggling with that is not allowing you to see the future and embrace what I have is money is, is your God. Now just scan the room. Whatever you worship is your idol. And you worship by your time, treasures, and talents. The tithe at the beginning of the service is an act of worship. It's putting God first. It's an act of worship. He is preeminent in everything I do, including my finances. The church has managed to make that into a way to milk people. And, and, and I, faced a strict, I face a stricter judgment if any of that is given and, and it is used for, for purposes that are not for his glory. But it still comes to this place, regardless of what the church does with the money, it is our relationship with the Lord. And so here you see this and he knows that's the one thing that separates him from an abiding relationship. For some of us, it could be a relationship for Adam. When Eve bit of the apple, Adam thought, you know what? I'd rather be with Eve in sin for the rest of my life than be without her and, and, and be with you, God. He, he, she was deceived. He willingly took it. Tracking me? Men? And so it always comes down to it's either God's way or my way. Whether the Frank Sinatra's song is this, the theme song in hell. I did it my way. And he goes right to the heart of the issue for this man. And it says, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It doesn't say that later he came to know the Lord. It just says at that moment, he went away sorrowful. Now, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, Paul writes in the book of Acts, and I'll read this to you. And he's, he's dealing with the condition of man. And as he goes to, to Athens, he goes to the Areopagus in Acts 17. And he's trying to figure out, he just sees a God for everything you can imagine. And you know what gods are? The, the Greeks and the Romans were at least honest. If alcohol possessed their life, they just simply called alcohol a God, Bacchus. If pornography possessed their life, they just simply called it Aphrodite. If, if, if anger and warring and vitriol, they called him Mars. And they just gave names to sins that possessed you, gods with a small g, not save you, but possessed you. And here he comes up to the Areopagus, and there is a temple for every god imaginable because everybody's dealing with something. And at least, again, the Greeks and the Romans were honest. This thing possesses me. It's bigger than me. It's impossible for me to quit. Right, Frank, without the Lord? And so when it comes to this place, Paul then in Acts 17, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious for I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, the unknown God. I mean, you got one for everybody and you even put an unknown one. And he says, 
He, and, he, and I love how Paul does this. He uses this to speak to the crowd. He says, therefore, according to your own <laughs> deity, to the unknown God, with that understanding, the one whom you worship without knowing today is him. I want to proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he need anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." As also some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art in man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Come back to him. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Christ is the savior of the world. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Paul didn't have any converts that day, but he rocked their world. And what he was saying is every man's without excuse. It says it in Romans chapter two, we'll cover it momentarily. And, and inside each and every one of you in your DNA, you know, you know, you know that you haven't made yourself. You know that you don't keep your heart beating at night when you're asleep and your lungs moving while you sleep. You know that you are part of a larger cosmos and that there is a designer. You say, well, I don't believe in a designer. Really? Yeah, I've never seen God. I want to show you this video. And what's fascinating about this is it's called the Fibonacci sequence. It's a golden ratio. It's this uh, amazing, uh, what they call... Um, 137.5 degrees. And, and when you see this, it is, it is imprinted by a designer into nature. It is a numerical sequence that is fascinating. And, and, and to say that there's no designer, watch this. Take a look at it. Let's lower the lights. And you can take a look at that Fibonacci sequence and this, this golden angle, 137.5 degrees. Study it for yourself. Take a look at it. And it, it's, it's these, these golden ratios that, that, that speak of a designer. Now, with that being said, uh, the, the, the ruler comes to him and says, you're good. So what is the standard? Where does this come from? What is this imprint? What is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? And, and it was Augustine who had written, and, and he was... Um, a theologian in the early part of, of the church's history. And he wrote of two different cities. He spoke of the city of God and the city of man. He said, for if we inquire whence it is, is uh, meaning the city of God, first of all, God created it. Whence it's wisdom, God illumined it. Whence it's blessedness, God is its bliss. It has its form by subsisting in him. It's enlightenment by contemplating him. It's joy by abiding in him. It is, it sees, it loves in God's eternity. It, it is, uh, is its life and God's truth is its light and God's goodness is its joy. By contrast, the city of man, and this is the, what the ruler was a part of is the secular order. It is an earthly city ruled by humans for their own gain. I got money using their own rules above all says Augustine. It is itself ruled by the lust of rule. 
The lust of rule is translated in the Latin libido dominandi. As Richard John Newhouse puts it, libido dominandi is the lust for power, advantage, and glory. It shouts, my way or no way. So we're all in this world that he's created. And it's either his way or our way. This lust for domination doesn't just characterize politics in the city of man. It characterizes each of us as in the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. The libido dominandi is that which each of us that plots and strives to have our own way and force others to do as we say. As such, it is the controlling passion of our fallen nature and thus of our fallen world. We see this lust to dominate beginning with the fall in the garden of Eden. And isn't it what Satan said to Eve? You will be like God. And so with this understanding, you have this rich young ruler who comes out and now he's confronted with his way or God's way. And all of us are confronted with that. But imprinted in each of you is a DNA by the hand of the creator of the universe that has given you a nature to flourish under. When children have love and they're educated and they understand right from wrong and they're given a society where they have opportunity and they restrain themselves from evil in order to pursue good, they flourish, they obtain this nature for which God created them. When we remove good and evil and we say that we are a cosmic accident, let's look at what it does to the nature of man. It's destruction. When we strive for lust and power, we destroy. Uh, It's not time for me to have a baby right now. So it's not a baby. We redefine everything for the sake of our own purposes as opposed to submitting to him. And the destruction occurs on the face of the earth. Now that destruction was never intended in a sense. And what's fascinating is this is the 500th anniversary of something that occurred with this dude. His name's Martin Luther. He was a Catholic priest who had looked at the church that had gone its own way and it had departed from the Lord. The citizenry, in a sense, were all ignorant. They were illiterate. They couldn't read. And they were, they were, they were causing fear amongst the populace to hold dominion over the populace. They had a thing where they had a purgatory and you would pay indulgences to get your loved ones out of hell. And because they couldn't read the scriptures and the scriptures weren't available until Tyndale would write them until they'd be available for the common man to read and faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. He contended with the Catholic church and put 95 theses up on the wall of the church in Wittenberg, the All Saints Church. And it's traditionally known as the 31st of October, 1517, which was 500 years ago this month. And one of these that he put up, interestingly enough, was Thesis 86, which asks, why does the Pope whose wealth is today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money? <laughs> the church itself, when it doesn't honor God, can also be in the hands of self-will. Just because you call yourself a church doesn't mean that you are submitted to the authority of God. And so... His heart to want to see this applied 
One of the things that bothered him the most is he attributed this to Johann Tetzel. And this was the saying that went around all of Europe. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And they would walk through the populace and people would put money in and droves somehow to save their family from hell. Nowhere did they understand any of these scriptures because there weren't scriptures available. And part of the reformation that happened, the Protestant reformation is throughout all of Europe they began to, to call for the children of the future generation to become literate. The very first public school act in America, 1647, was the old Satan deluder act to teach kids how to read. Because now you start to understand the universe. You know how to, com- uh, 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 how to comprehend truth and how to communicate it and how to fight for justice and establish these things. And all of a sudden, this full nature of who you are starts to flourish as we create a society that benefits And that's why Jesus said, let the little children come to me. This is the kingdom of God. You invest your life in the future generation by allowing them to flourish and understand their full nature by giving them the ability to see who they are in the Lord. The law, the ancients said, and this was Aquinas who said, the law are the wise restraints that make men free. You apply restraint to evil in order to pursue excellence. And, and, and they understood this. These theologians of the Reformation understood this. And they started to establish justice and started to put these things in order. The rich young ruler realized, I'm going to lose my dominion over what I have. I don't want to be a part of it. Not your way, my way. He walks away. But he still knows in his heart, and Jesus still loves him. He knows in his heart, something is amiss. Something isn't working here. And it was the money that was his God, not the Lord. He never understood his full nature because something possessed him that didn't allow him to flourish. You'll know the truth and the truth will what? He would never know that unless he came back in humility. Jesus said, if a man wants to gain his life, what does he have to do? Lose it. Give it away. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a a servant of all. This is unlike anything that the earth had ever seen that you lay your life down for a future generation, that you lay your life down for another human being, that you lay your life down. You love your enemy. You do good to those who spitefully use you unheard of. And yet for a rich man to get to heaven is like a camel passing through the eye of a needle, not the scale. (laughs) It is so difficult for us to give up that thing that possesses us. You know what? It's impossible. Frankel testified at night, and I can testify. There are times in my life where, God, if, if, if I could give this to you, I would. But I, it's not in me. Even in the big book, in AA, he recognized that I don't have the ability. Only God can do this. Help me. And Jesus says, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. With, with man, it's impossible. With God, it is possible. He can take that which possesses you and set you free when you will know him and receive him. Romans says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law unto themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts or conscience, also bearing witness and between themselves are thoughts accusing or else excusing them. We know when we've screwed up, even when you say that there are no metaphysical aspects, there's no God, you still call something evil. You still have a standard. 
I know because you've called me evil. And that means that there's good. So welcome. We know we're fooling ourselves to say there isn't a designer. He's put eternity in their hearts. It says in Ecclesiastes, we all know. Aquinas distinguished different levels of precepts or commands that the natural law entails. And the most universal is this command. Good is to be done and pursued and evil is to be avoided. Similar to the wiser strengths that make men free. Avoid evil, pursue good. Avoid evil, pursue good. What happens as society flourishes? The wiser strengths that make men free. Isaiah 33, 22. These are the aspects of government on the earth. There's three aspects of government on the earth. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. So you're always going to have executive, legislative, judicial, right? We've covered this. Genesis. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the word subdue, it means to govern it. And right after that, they had Cain and Abel. Murder entered. It doesn't mean that we no longer have this responsibility. It means that there's a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of God is one of service and one of sacrifice and others centered. The kingdom of man is self-consumed. I am possessed by my possessions. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve political bands. We've studied this. The laws of nature and nature's God. Powers of the earth, separate and equal station to which entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind that impel them to this separation. The Declaration of Independence was declaring that we are created equal in the eyes of God, the laws of nature, nature's God. We want to create a government that allows mankind to flourish by restraining evil and pursuing good. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, certain inalienable rights. We've covered those. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. If we're equal, I can only do to you what you give me consent to do. And in relationship, which is the Godhead, in relationship with each other, which is society, we want to do what's right. And where do we get what's good? From God. And he loves mankind. He wants us to pursue this and the consent of the governed. This is fascinating about our founders. That word consent started the American Revolution because the king was in charge. Yeah, this is libido dominati, dominiti. This is, I'm in charge. I'm going to, power is mine. I am in complete control. And that didn't work. And the world had never seen it before. And all of a sudden, Martin Luther comes on the scene. The Protestant Reformation hits and they start to look at this in a way they never have. And they put, we, the people, you know what they did? They made the people, the sovereign. Why? Because we're creating the image of God and we're equal, but the sovereign is dangerous because we want by nature, libido dominandi, we want to have power on our own. We want to be in control. So in order to form a more perfect union and establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity for the children, let the children come unto me. They do ordain, establish this constitution, United States of America. What did they do with the constitution? This is what they did. They avoided a democracy. We are a constitutional republic, not a democracy. A democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting what's for dinner. <laughs> Look, I'm almost finished. All men are created equal. Can I get an amen? amen. Not in capacity, but in dignity. Therefore, they may be governed only by their consent. 
Therefore, the people will be the sovereign. Therefore, the people will be the most dangerous thing because the sovereign is the one who has the power. And what do we do in the flesh with power? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Can I sit at your right? Can I sit at your left? Yes. What's in it for me, boss? So we're the most dangerous. We, the people, we're the most dangerous. So how is the sovereign going to operate in relation to the government if we're the most dangerous? You know what our founders did? They put the sovereign outside the government. We don't run the government. We have representatives. And the most dangerous, I know this sounds strange. It was was actually Hamilton who said the most dangerous of the three branches of government is not the judiciary. (laughs) He said the most dangerous was the legislative because they're the ones we elect and they hold the purse strings. And the executive branch, we don't elect the executive branch. The electoral college does. And some of you go, well, no, 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 do your homework. And that was for a reason. They wanted to avoid a democracy because they knew that if we were in power, this is what would happen. Who is the sovereign and why? We, the people, by the consent of the governed. What is the final cause of a constitutional republic? The freedom of the individual. What does that mean? We now flourish we represent less than 3% of the entirety of the history of the world's population, yet we've had more, you know, more patents, more symphonies, more Nobel Peace Prize winners. We've had more wealth. This is a nation that has flourished because we've had freedom. And that freedom has come because the final cause of a constitutional republic is to allow the individual freedom. Man wants to concentrate power. We give it back. We give it back. What is the final cause of a monarchy, or better yet, an oligarchy? Libido dominandi. I'm in control. Shut up, do as you're told and like it. If the sovereign is the strongest thing, it is the most dangerous thing. I think I'm finished. Oh, one has a constitutional republic and the other has libido dominandi. This is at night, a satellite picture of North Korea and South Korea. One is commerce and flourishing and people enjoying, you know, their families by light and and the other is impoverished and dying. The point is this. The man was confronted with that which he was unwilling to give up. And God wants you not to consolidate your power, but to give it away. And the first way you do that is to trust him. You're living under the illusion that you think you're in control and you are not. And God says, are you tired yet? How's that worked for you? And we're watching a world implode on itself. And God says, I want the children to flourish. I want you to give your life away. I want you to serve mankind. And for all of us, one of the reasons why the church is suffering in America is because the pulpits would rather you throw money in the bucket and not talk about the difficult things. Just keep butts in the pews. But the purpose of the pulpit is to preach the truth that you would know the truth that the truth would set you free. And that's your responsibility as well. And if a culture is to be touched, it's because we give our lives away in service of that. So how does the city of God get established on the earth? A city shining on the hill. 
by God's people engaging in culture with the truth from the scriptures applied into the lives to prepare a future for their children and their posterity. And when I shared that with that individual, they were moved. And you know what? They don't even go to church and they got it. And here we are. And God wants us to be used for his glory. And you can see the creator's hand and the imprint on every human heart. And we've been given a structure to be able to do that. And it's time we apply that as his people. And the way it begins is simply this. And this is what I close with. And that's what I loved about Mark. Mark 10. Jesus loved that man. He loves you. Regardless of what dominates you, regardless of what governs you, he loves you. He's come that you might have life and life more abundant. And he wants you to know the truth that the truth will set you free. And it starts with this. It's either your will or his. And whatever it is you're unwilling to give up, that is your God. He says, you surrender it to me and you will not even believe what you'll be blessed with. And you've been trying to keep the plate spinning in your illusion of an empire. And God says, are you tired yet? He says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, that he is the sovereign, that he is the magistrate, you will be saved, delivered, set free. But you have to surrender. You have to give him, give up that illusion for the reality of the creator of the universe who has imprinted this nature on your heart so that you'd flourish. You're going to die with your Kung Fu grip on the things that you never had a hold of to begin with. There are no hearses that are no U-Hauls that follow the hearse to the cemetery. (laughs) And you're going to get to heaven with your bag of gold and say, look, and they'll say, why did you bring pavement? (laughs) Do you realize how trite all this is? And God wants you to flourish and it's time to be set free. Let's pray. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, this is, this is a moment in Matthew 19 where, where Jesus looked at, at this rich young ruler and, and he, he was plagued with the same thing everyone in the room's plagued with. And he knows exactly what it is. He goes into your heart and he knows what it is. You know what it is and God knows what it is. And he said, give that to me. Let that no longer have dominion over your life. I want to be your God. I'm your creator. I've designed you. I want you to come back to me. This is a time that he's given all mankind to come to him. I don't want to judge you. I want to love you. I want to forgive you. I want to cleanse you. And I want you to experience the fullness of what I designed you to be. And I want you to let go of this illusion that you think you're holding on to something with that Kung Fu grip that you never had to begin with but it's going to require what that rich young ruler was unwilling to give, a surrender of your life. And Jesus said, if you you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is the magistrate, he is the sovereign, you will be saved. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but that of Jesus Christ. So as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, 
in a moment, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want him to be your sovereign and you want to do what the rich young ruler didn't, you want to give your life to Christ. You want to surrender this illusion for the reality of your creator. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. It's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. And so right now, as the Lord is searching our hearts, salvation is a miracle of God. He's going to set you free from being possessed by your possessions. This is a miracle of God, salvation. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. You know it. And all he's asking you to do is give him your life by acknowledging it. So as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm going to ask you right now, if you want to receive Christ as your sovereign, your Lord, and yield to his kingdom, that you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. I'm going to ask you right now, would you please raise your hand right now? Amen. God bless you. 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 And you and you over here. Amen. You know, the Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one person recognizes that. I mean, you are now part of the solution and no longer part of the problem. You now understand that we live for others. You've now joined the kingdom of heaven. What a, what a great blessing is yours to behold. And trust me, whatever you think you gave up is going to pale in comparison to what you've gained. And so I ask that the Lord would fill you and bless you and touch you in a profound and mighty way for his glory. And Lord, as the angels rejoice, so do we for those who've given their lives to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's clap for those folks who gave their heart to the Lord. Tonight, uh, come back for the concert six to eight with me and my buddy Frank and his, his guys. And then also, uh, please sign up for the women's tea. But right now, let's stand and let's worship the Lord and just praise him. Let's praise the Lord. If you gave your heart to the Lord, there'll be folks up here to pray with if you'd like. Um, and I just want to say I'm so blessed to have witnessed that miracle before my eyes. So may God bless you and keep you. Amen.